0: Core of the Bible Podcast, number one hundred twenty-four, Resurrection, Part Four: The Significance of Messiah's Resurrection. Welcome once again to the Core of the Bible Podcast. My name is Steve, and I'm your host in reviewing the key focal points in the biblical narrative. Now, up to this point in our resurrection series we've covered a lot of ground in relation to the topic of resurrection. In the first essay, we looked at individual resurrections in the Bible and the teaching of Yeshua on the idea that eternal life was capable of being bestowed within this lifetime and then also to be carried on in the next. Next, we reviewed how judgment and resurrection were described in the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel. And although they each prophesied of a collective physical resurrection of Israel from its captivity, it was an allegorical resurrection which pointed to their restoration in the land and their inheritance after their captivities of judgment were completed. And then last time, we reviewed the timing of Daniel's prophecy of a final resurrection of judgment, which also included not just a restoration to the inheritance, but a bestowal of eternal life. Now, due to the corruption of that first century generation, it appeared that judgment was carried out in the final days of national Israel in 68-70 to AD, and spiritual life was granted in the establishment of prophetic Zion, the eternal city or kingdom of God. So now we've come to the most famous of all resurrections, the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah himself. And as mentioned previously... The Apostle Paul believed that Yeshua's resurrection was absolutely a central doctrine of the nascent believing community. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 and 14 we read, But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Messiah has been raised. And if Messiah has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, while in previous essays we looked at how Yeshua himself taught about the resurrection of others, Today I'd like to focus on Messiah's own resurrection, and the meaning with which it's infused from the rest of the biblical writings in the Tanakh. Now to be clear, I will not be dealing with evidences for the resurrection of Messiah, as I believe that's well attested in many other commentaries and studies which are already available for anyone to research further. I'm assuming that most of you reading or listening to this today believe the resurrection of Messiah is true, as I do. And In these studies, though, I am choosing to look at resurrection as a theme or a motif throughout the Bible and what the implications are for the believer today. So to best understand Messiah's resurrection, I think we would do well to understand it from His perspective as much as possible. And to do so, we're going to be looking at the evening of the day of His resurrection, and how he explained to his disciples what had happened. In two conversations, Yeshua was able to recount for his disciples the meaning of his resurrection in the context of the entire Bible. Firstly, Yeshua encountered two unnamed disciples of his as they traveled from Jerusalem to Emmaus, debating between themselves the meaning of what had occurred since the crucifixion and empty tomb that had just been discovered that morning. In Luke 24, verses 15 and 16, we read, And while they were discussing and arguing, Yeshua himself came near and began to walk along with them, but they were prevented from recognizing him. So as they discussed the confusion of the events of the day, Yeshua began to instruct them, and this is in verses 25 through 27. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then we find that later that same evening, Yeshua appeared to the eleven remaining disciples and repeated this same information. And this is in verses 44 through 47. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and on a third day rise from the dead, and that in his name repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, while the details of these conversations that Yeshua had with these disciples and the explanation of how he fulfilled what was written in the Tanakh are not recorded for us, I believe we can still glean some of the passages that he may have represented to those disciples by reading how the early believing congregations interpreted key passages from moses the psalms and the prophets his followers would memorialize some of these passages within the new testament writings which we can reflect on in the context of yeshua's fulfillment of these things First, let's look at what was written in the law of Moses. Even during his ministry, Yeshua made it clear that he was fulfilling the very scriptures in which the Jews continually searched for their Messiah. In John 5, verses 45-47, through he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? So in what ways did Moses write about Messiah over a thousand years before Yeshua even walked the earth? Well, one of the most prominent statements from Moses was his prediction that God would raise up a prophet like himself from among their own people. And this is in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. He says, Yahweh, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And early in the Gospel of John, we find Philip recognizing this very passage being fulfilled in the person of Yeshua as he excitedly tells Nathanael about him. In John 1, verse 45, it says, Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, We found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Yeshua, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. The Apostle Peter even urgently preached this very passage to those Jews who witnessed the healing of the lame man in the temple courts. In Acts 3, verse 22, Peter says, Moses said to the fathers, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Now, that Yeshua was to be a prophet like Moses can be illustrated by reviewing some parallels between the lives of Moses and Yeshua. First of all, they both spoke the words of God to the people. In Exodus 4, verse 12, we read, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. That's Yahweh speaking to Moses. And in John 12, verses 44 and 49, it says, And Yeshua cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Secondly, we see they both provided the source of life. In Numbers 21, verse 8, it says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole, and when anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. And in John 3, verses 14 and 15, it reads, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life we see they both also provided the bread of heaven. In Exodus 16, verses 14 and 15, it says, When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And Moses told them, It is the food Yahweh has given you to eat. And in John 6, verses 32 and 35, it says, Yeshua said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. Yeshua replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And finally, they both proclaimed the commands of God from a mountain. In Exodus 24, verse 12, Yahweh said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay there so that I may give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments I have written for their instruction. In Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, we read, When he saw the crowds, he, that's Yeshua, went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and so on. So we see that Yeshua's resurrection proved that everything Moses was for the natural fleshly nation of Israel, Yeshua was going to be for the spiritual heavenly kingdom of God. Now that Yeshua was not just like Moses but was also a prophet is illustrated by these few examples. First of all, he foresaw his own death and resurrection in mark eight thirty one we read He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Yeshua also prophesied of the expansion of the worship of the one true God beyond the land and leadership of Israel. In John 4, verses 20 and 21, The woman at the well said, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And Yeshua told her, "'Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem.'" And he also foresaw the complete destruction of the temple within that generation. Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2 and 34, it says, "'As Yeshua left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, "'Do you see all these things?' Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. So what other kinds of things can we find in the books of Moses that illustrate the work of Messiah? In God's condemnation of the serpent in the opening chapters of Genesis, we find a prophecy about the quote-unquote seed of the woman, who would gain dominion over the power of the serpent. Genesis 3 verse 15 says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. After sparing Isaac on the altar, God related to Abraham how his offspring would bring blessing to the rest of the nations. Genesis 22 verse 18 says, And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command." Now, this blessing to all nations was to come through the seed of Abraham. The Apostle Paul writes about the nature and the identity of this seed. Galatians 3 verse 16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Messiah. And it was through this Messiah, the seed of Abraham, that these blessings would be poured out into the world. Now, Additionally, the entire narrative of the closing 14 chapters of Genesis, that's 28% of the whole book, are consumed with telling the story of Joseph, one who was separated from among his brothers, was considered dead, and yet was discovered to be alive and ruling over the entire known world at the right hand of the supreme ruler of the world at that time, which was Pharaoh. Parallels in the story of Joseph to the life of Messiah have been enumerated over the centuries, and they illustrate in true allegory the role and character of Messiah. Even the biblical calendar described in the Law of Moses explains the work of Messiah. And while all of the annual moedim, or seasonal appointments, illustrate Messiah, two in particular are stark indicators of His ultimate glory. The Day of Atonement where the sacrifice of Messiah for Israel's sin is illustrated by the double goat ceremony, one who dies and one who yet lives, and also Yom Hashemini, or the eighth day, where the eternal kingdom is illustrated by the eighth day, the day beyond the seven days of this natural world cycle. All of these examples only scratch the surface of the ways Messiah had been prefigured in the writings of Moses, and how his work was to move Israel from the natural, represented by following Moses and doing the letter of Torah, into the spiritual, which is represented by following Messiah and doing the Torah of God from the heart. Only a resurrected Messiah could accomplish what was to become eternal and spiritual. So Yeshua not only represented to his disciples that Moses had written about him, but also the prophets. So what are some examples of prophetic writings that he may have discussed with them on that road to Emmaus? Well, from Peter's speech in the temple, we read this in Acts 3.24. It says, In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. So what kinds of things were foretold within the writings of Israel's prophets? Well, Israel was promised a king. Most believers are very familiar with a verse in Isaiah, which usually becomes very prevalent around Christmas time. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, it says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. But if we keep reading into the very next verse, we find that a very great promise is provided to Israel. In Isaiah 9, 7, it says, The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will accomplish this. This prophetic announcement of the permanent rule of Messiah over God's kingdom, a David-like figure, became the hope of Israel and even to this day jews are expectantly awaiting their messiah sadly they do not recognize that he has come and he's already reigning in the eternal kingdom of god now the angelic messenger gabriel is also recorded as conveying this kingship of yeshua to mary yeshua's mother of the significance of her miraculous child in luke chapter 1 verses 31 through 33 we read now listen you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him yeshua he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. In Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 4, it says, Bethlehem Ephratah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion! Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem! Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." And this specific prophecy is even declared by the writers of Scripture to have been fulfilled by Messiah in the final week of his life. In John 12, verses 12 through 16, we read, The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Yeshua was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Yeshua found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Yeshua was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, most importantly, within the prophetic books, Israel was promised an eternal inheritance. In Daniel 2, verse 44, we read, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. In this prophecy, we see how this eternal kingdom would be set up, quote, in the days of those kings, unquote. And the kings mentioned in the vision were the feet of iron mixed with clay, which most commentators equate with the Roman Empire. This kingdom, to be established by God, was to be set up in those days, and it was to endure forever. Now, that this messianic figure would be killed and rise from the dead is not only illustrated allegorically by the story of Joseph, who was said to have been killed by wild animals, but was then discovered alive. But the resurrection is conveyed by Yeshua's own use of the story of the prophet Jonah from that prophetic book. In Matthew 12, verse 40, it says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And also in Luke 11 verse 30 it says, For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. So now that we've looked at some of the indications of Messiah in the writings of Moses and the prophets, we now turn to the Psalms. And while there are many Psalms which have messianic overtones, Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament writings. So here it is in Psalm 110 verses 1 through 4. A Psalm of David. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This teaches us how Yeshua's resurrection established him not only as the permanent ruler of God's kingdom, but also a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The writer to the Hebrews explains how this oath of God ensured that Messiah had to rise from the dead in order to establish the eternal priesthood within his kingdom. And this is in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20-25, and it says, And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests, that is, the earthly priests, were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever. This makes Yeshua the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death by continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we see the Psalms also speak of his resurrection before his dead body would become decayed. Psalm 16, verse 10, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Yeshua's resurrection demonstrated that he was truly the Son of God, his King, receiving the kingdom assigned to David. In Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. This psalm confirms that the king that Yahweh desired to place on the throne of his kingdom, the prophetic new Jerusalem of Zion, was to be his own son. He would inherit not just the land of Israel, but have the nations before him. And these qualities were also brought out in Paul's sermon in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, as he quoted several of the psalms regarding the resurrection of God's own Son reigning on the throne of David. In Acts 13, verses 30-35, through it says, But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. So we've already seen how strongly Paul felt that the resurrection of Messiah was central to the story of redemption. And here we see him piling on these several passages from the Prophets and Psalms that we've just reviewed to corroborate that Yeshua fulfilled what was written and promised to their fathers in generations past. In 1 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. Because of His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So, an inheritance that was to be imperishable, undefiled, and unfading would only be possible with an ever living prophet, king, and priest. Israel's eternal inheritance was bound up together with a living representative of an everlasting covenant so that the kingdom of God would be firmly established and would never pass away. The resurrection of Yeshua accomplished all of these things. So we saw in our last essay how the kingdom was always meant to be spiritual because only spiritual things can last forever. And we saw this in Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. He says, So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So the resurrection of Yeshua enabled all of these qualities to become true, not just for a generation or even for a particular earthly reign, but forever. Israel was promised a prophet like Moses, and Yeshua's resurrection allows him to be that prophet forever. Israel was promised a king like David, and Yeshua's resurrection allows him to be that king forever. Israel was promised a priest like Melchizedek, and Yeshua's resurrection allows him to be that priest forever. Therefore, the resurrection of Yeshua was an absolute necessity, which is why Paul would write, in 1 Corinthians 15:14, "and if Messiah has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain and so is your faith." You see, the belief in Yeshua as Messiah necessitates a belief in his resurrection. Otherwise, the whole of the Bible narrative falls apart and is robbed of its true meaning. One cannot be true without the other. A resurrected messiah makes no sense without the full context of the rest of the biblical narrative and promises made to israel and the biblical narrative and promises require an eternal prophet king and priest without an eternal prophet we cannot know the will of god without an eternal king we have no righteous authority and without an eternal priest we have no atonement for sin however The whole thing put together results in a beautiful harmony of God's threefold provision for His people and for any who choose to align themselves with the God of Israel. He has established His eternal King upon His throne, an eternal prophet who reveals the will or the word of God to His people forever, and an eternal priest who always lives to intercede for those who come to Him. And this is why Messiah has supremacy over Adam, because he has conquered not only sin, but death. Romans 5 verse 17, Paul writes, If by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, that is Adam, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Yeshua Messiah? And this is also why Messiah has supremacy over Moses, since Moses faithfully created and cared for the kingdom of God on the earth, the house of Israel, in his generation. But it is through Messiah that the new creation of the eternal kingdom of God has been built. In Hebrews 3 verses 2 and 3, it says he, that is Yeshua, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Yeshua is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. See, if Yeshua truly is our prophet, king, and priest, then for believers there really is no need any longer for earthly prophets, kings, or priests. Our primary allegiance belongs to Yahweh through His provision of our ultimate teacher, authority, and intercessor, Yeshua, not to some earthly counterfeit. And while we still need to abide by the rulers of this earth, our ultimate allegiance belongs only to Yahweh through His Messiah, Yeshua. And this is why no natural nation, entity, or organization can claim supreme authority as the quote-unquote true people of God or belief system, Because only a spiritual entity, the kingdom of God, is eternal. All else is subject to death and corruption. Only God's word and His kingdom with His designated and chosen prophet, king, and priest is eternal. And because of His resurrection, only Yeshua Messiah has the right to stand in authority over all other belief systems. By conquering death, he has validated forever the truth that he taught, fulfilling all that was written about him in the writings of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, just as he had explained to his disciples. And by being raised from the dead, he became the genesis of a whole new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, So from now on we have known no one according to the flesh, and even if we have known Messiah according to the flesh, yet now we know him no more. So that if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creature. The old things did pass away. Behold, all things have become new. God has renewed and restored and resurrected his people in Messiah Yeshua. The very real and tangible resurrection of Messiah after His crucifixion was the physical token revealing the genesis of this new creation. In Messiah, all things are already new. And because of Messiah's resurrection, believers today can have not only hope through the struggles in this life, but the ultimate hope in an instantaneous and eternal existence in God's presence once this life is through. Speaking to Martha at the tomb of her brother Lazarus, Yeshua uttered what I believe were the most important words to give believers hope in this life. John 11 verses 25 and 26, Yeshua said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, this series has been a long journey and has taken us into some areas that are not typically reviewed in the context of resurrection. However, I truly hope that through all of these scriptural detours and rabbit holes, that there are at least a couple of concepts and ideas to encourage you to meditate on and to study out further on your own. But remember, if you have thoughts or comments that you'd like to explore further with me, feel free to email me at coreofthebible at gmail.com And if you happen to be listening on YouTube, please leave your thoughts and comments below. And if you like what you're hearing and want to help spread the Core of the Bible message, then please like this video, as it will then be recommended to more and more people. And be sure to visit coreofthebible.org for all of the podcasts on our podcast page there. Once again, thanks for joining me today. And as always, I hope to be invited back into your headphones in another episode to come. Take care.